Okay, good afternoon, friends and colleagues, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Environment in Asia Research Series at the Fellbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. Um, welcome, you all. My name is Ling Zhang. I am an environmental historian of China. I teach Chinese history and environmental history at Boston College. I will be your moderator for today. Before introducing the event and our panelists, I would like to quickly introduce our series. Environment in Asia started in 2012. It was initiated by Professor Michael Muscolino when he spent that year at Harvard. Professor Muscolino is an environmental historian of modern China at the University of California, San Diego. In 2013, Professor Moscolino entrusted um, this series to me, along with his vision to advocate for Chinese environmental history. Ever since then, I've been convening this series, adding to it an interdisciplinary dimension and using it as a platform to bring together scholars from the humanities, the social sciences, the natural sciences, and sometimes we also have artists and creative writers. The goal here is to raise awareness of and generate interest in environmental studies within the broader field of Chinese studies and in East Asian studies. It is also to build a scholarly community so we know who's doing what, with what specialty, so we can establish communication with them and even seek collaborations with them. So now, um, Environment in Asia is in its ninth year. So far, it has organized more than 30 research events and hosted more than 60 researchers. I think, given the continuous support from the leadership and the colleagues at the Fellbank Center with the generous inputs from scholars across North America and scholars from Europe and in Asia, I'm confident that our series will continue to grow. Indeed, we're now facing the unprecedented challenge. The COVID-19 pandemic forces us to give up travel, so we have to shut down all of our physical uh, events. But I think it, this also offers us a rare opportunity. Online events like this one drastically expands our intellectual community across the virtual space. As I know, more than 200 people have registered for this event alone. So this is marvelous. The internet is now helping us to reach out to a far wider, much wider audience. So our message in regard to environmental studies, environmental history, in relation to Chinese studies and East Asian study can be heard by many more people. So I encourage you, our audience, to continue to follow us, follow our program in the future. Check out our future events on the Fellbank Center's website. So I'm currently putting together another panel to address the issues on historical epidemics and public health in China. The details of that event will be provided quite soon. So now today, we're very, very fortunate to invite four excellent environmental historians here with us to speak for the panel, The River Dragon Has Indeed Come. For those of you who are familiar with the literature of water management, flood control, and hydroelectricity in modern China, you must know that panel seems to uh, try to echo the title of a highly influential book, which is called The River Dragon Has Come, Three Gorges Dam and the Fate of China's Yangtze River. 
In 19, uh, that 1998 book features uh, the writer and uh, journalist Dai Ching, and uh, the book's goal is to press questions upon human, humanitarian, and environmental problems in regard to the construction of the Three Gorges Dam. 22 years after that famous book was published, in this so far still disastrous 2020, we realized that the river dragon has indeed come. And not a single dragon, but many of them. The expensive floods in China this year have affected more than uh, close to, I think, 60 million people in 27 provinces, causing 158, perhaps more people, to be missing or die. So our agenda today is to learn something about these floods and to reflect on the connections between these con contemporary disaster events and the long-term historical disaster patterns. Our speakers today are Clark Alejandrino, who teaches at Trinity College, Chris Corty, who teaches at Durham University in England, Xiang Li Ding, who teaches at Rhode Island School of Design, and Yang Gao, who teaches at the University of Memphis. The panel will take the format of serious conversations. At the end of it, it will leave out, I hope, 30 minutes for Q&A. So if you come up with questions, please type your question out, type them out in the Q&A section of this web webinar. So if this is your first time to use a webinar, you can find a button called Q&A at the bottom of the webinar's window. Click it and you can pull out the Q&A. So I will moderate the Q&A section. All right, given all this, I'm gonna turn to our four speakers to ask them to quickly introduce themselves. How about we follow the um, order we put it on the website Clark to go first and then Chris and then um, Xiangli and Yen. Hi um, I'm Clark Alejandrino so as Ling mentioned I teach at Trinity College and my research is primarily in the area of ch climate history and animal history of China and I'm currently revising a book manuscript on typhoons in the history of South China over the lingerie. Hi, uh, I'm Chris Courtney. Uh, I'm currently in the UK. I, I work at uh, Durham University. I'm a social and environmental historian of modern China. Um, so like many academics, I'm used to laboring in relative obscurity on in kind of uh, topics that are very niche. But unfortunately, I found myself relevant twice this year for, for bad reasons. So firstly, it's because I specialize on the city of Wuhan. Obviously, everybody knows that that's been uh, become the center of the media spotlight uh, since January and also I researched the history of flooding in central China and of course that being the topic of today's webinar and I kind of published a book on that called The Nature of Disaster in China a couple of years ago. Okay I shall uh, hand over to Shang Li. Thank you Chris. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Shang Li Ding. Um, first I, I would like to thank Ling for including me um, in this event. Um, so uh, I define myself as an environmental historian uh, who works on 20th century China. I'm particularly interested in the uh, rise of hydroelectricity. Uh, currently, I'm working on a book manuscript uh, about the uh, rise of hydroelectricity and major hydropower projects in China, which uh, include, but not limited, uh, on the first concrete dam on the Yellow River, Sanmenshah Hydropower Project. 
So it examines the um, kind of reservoir uh, displacement, uh, environmental change, uh, and the many other social issues. Uh, I really look forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Yan, you're muted. Hi, I'm Yan Gao, and uh, I'm a native uh, of Wuhan. And uh, uh, for some reason, and many of my neighbors and the friends started asking me, and uh, finally knows about where I'm from. And so I'm a historian of late imperial in the modern China, and I work at a chapter of social and environmental history, and I have been searching about the water management of the Middle Yangtze region, with a focus on the community initiatives um, of the environmental management. I am interested in issues such as human uh, military impact on the environment and how ethnicities played out in their interactions with the local environment. And I have recently given my attention to the study of uh, epidemic diseases. I'm currently finalizing my book manuscript and Yangtze Waters and Transforming the Water Regime in the Jianghan Plan of Late Imperial China. And I examined the community dike management, specifically polders, from a long-term perspective and uh, argue that uh, changing water region in the region acted as a contested domain and for state politics, community management, and environmental transformation. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all of you for getting together to, you know, to talk about these painful and yet significant issues. So let's talk about 2020 floods. How about all four of you gave us an education about what happened? Why did it happen? How, how do have people been experiencing the floods? How the situation looks like on the ground? What are the significant issues we should pay special attention to? How about I call out to Chris to begin with, then I think Clark, Yen, and Xiangli can uh, follow by adding more information. Okay, thanks very much, Ling. Um, so for me, like I, mean, I guess many people here, I've been kind of digesting images of this flood from afar, right? I'm unable to go to China and kind of see what the situation is on the ground. Um, but I've kind of been seeing some pictures of inundated communities, destroyed houses, all these kind of Song Dynasty bridges that have been destroyed and all, all sorts of terrible things. And as somebody who researches the history of floods, these are all too familiar. So what I'd like to do in these initial comments is think a little bit about the ways in which the floods of 2020 represent a continuity with the past, but also to think about how it's a, actually a departure from the historical pattern of flooding in this region. Uh, and it's a continuity in the terms of the kind of physical impact of the flood, a departure in some ways in terms of the humanitarian impact of the flood. So beginning with the continuity, um, the kind of deep context for this, it shouldn't be surprising that there are floods in 2020, right? This, this region has been water abundant since before human beings were occupying this area. In fact, people have actually derived a number of benefits from this abundance of water. You can think of things like wet rice agriculture, pisciculture, all, the, all these kinds of ways of living with a water abundant environment. However, by the modern era, 
both kind of patterns of settlement and also the kind of unsustainable interventions into the river system that people have made uh, ensured that people began to experience flooding as a kind of chronic problem. So you'd have flooding almost every year by the kind of 19th, 20th century, and then these big, spectacular mega floods that would strike every few decades. And so in the 20th century, we had for the kind of big ones were in 1931, 1954, and 1998. So in a way, and you can see these are recurring every couple of decades, you would think 2020 floods actually fits quite nicely into this continuity, this historical pattern. Of course, the major distinction is the fact that this problem is supposed to have been uh, alleviated by the construction of the, the Three Gorges Dam, which I'm not going to talk about because we have another uh, speaker who's going to discuss that in, in greater detail. Suffice it to say, we already knew from extensive waterlogging in years like 2016 that it, this dam hadn't solved localised flooding. But we now know it's probably not also solved the problem with kind of regional kind of mega flooding, which I'm sure the engineers would debate. So in a way, we've got this kind of continuity with the past. At the same time, we do have a departure from the kind of the, the history of flooding as a humanitarian catastrophe rather than just as a hydrological event. So what do I mean by this? So I in no way want to minimize the misery that people are suffering in China at the moment. It's caused tens of thousands of homes to be destroyed. Billions of yuan have been knocked off the economy. It's already suffering because of coronavirus. So far, the death toll is in the hundreds, and that's tragic for all of the people who have lost their lives and their families. But if you compare it, say, for example, to the 1998 floods when 3,000 3, people, more than 3,000 people died, then the 1954 floods when 150,000 people died, and then the 1931 floods when in excess of 2 million people died, you can see in humanitarian terms, this doesn't fit with this pattern. And I would argue that the fundamental difference, when we're looking at the history of flooding, there's a tendency to focus on the kind of hydraulic history. But the fundamental difference is actually the transformation of the epidemiological environment. Because what happens now with floods is they're not causing these horrific out, out, um, outbreaks of cholera, schistosomiasis, uh, malaria, all of these things that really blighted the lives of Chinese people in the mid 20th century and really drove the mortality during these events. So um, I, I'll kind of round up my comments by saying when we're thinking about kind of the contemporary and historical problem of flooding, we need to pay attention not just to kind of dikes and dams, but also to pathogens, pathogens and vectors and things like this that cause uh, mass diseases in the aftermath of flooding. Excellent comment. Now we're going to move on to Clark. Um, so let me just share my screen. Um, so I'm the climate historian on this panel, so I've been tasked to talk a bit about what's going on up in the air rather than down on the ground. And uh, let me just start with what I think is the most um, easy to understand video about the Mayu front, and then I'm going to go into some detail about what um, was in this video and speak about it in uh terms of climate history of the Meiji. Okay, and from there, let me just... Of course, the most important component in these rains is the start of the Asian monsoon. And this is basically a seasonal prevailing wind pattern, um, basically the summer monsoon versus the winter monsoon. And here in the case of these floods, we're dealing with the summer monsoon. And it's 
um, powered primarily by differences in temperature and pressure gradients between the Asian continental landmass and the surrounding oceans. And knowledge of these prevailing winds have, of course, allowed people in the Indian Ocean to conduct maritime trade over the course of the last 2,000 years. And um, this, you can see on this uh, slide that um, the oceans, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean have been um, warming up significantly since May. And the, all this um, heat is driving the moisture um, laden air over these oceans into the um, Asian landmass. And you can see from this map, map from NOAA that um, especially in the Indian Ocean, uh, we, ha we have warmer than average uh, sea surface temperatures in June and July. And uh, this, these Indian Ocean sea surface temperatures, these warmer than average Indian Ocean sea, sea surface temperatures have uh, what we call in climate climatology teleconnections. So uh, these are um, climate anomalies that in far away places that are related to each other. And Indian Ocean sea surface temperatures, especially in this southeastern quadrant, uh, when they're warmer than average, they usually correspond with a stronger Western North Pacific high here in this uh, letter A over here, uh, this circle, this anticyclonic letter A over here on the Philippines. And it also corresponds usually to greater precipitation over the Yangtze River and the Huaihe River Valley in China. And the reason for this is that uh, Indian Ocean sea surface temperatures when they're higher, they drive uh, moisture, more moisture up into uh, Southeast Asia and China. And this is accelerated by the West, a very strong Western North Pacific high pressure area, which helps drive all that moisture into central China. Um, another factor we have to consider is the Tibetan Plateau and the Westerly Jet. And this is what actually marks the Meiyi Front, where the most heaviest rainstorms occur over central China. And this Westerly Jet is also seasonal. It usually, it occurs year round, but its location depends on the seasons. And during June, it's uh, over uh, north of the Himalayan plateau and it drives into central China. The position of course varies every year. And it is this combination of moisture, low level moisture coming in from the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean and its interaction with the Tibetan westerly jet, which causes all of this uh, precipitation over central China. So as th these two different bodies of air collide in central China, it causes the moisture-laden air from the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean to rise and release its precipitation uh, over the Yangtze River and the Huaihe River Valley. So you can see it's the westerly jet that also drives all of this moisture from central China all the way into Japan and Korea. And we, we know that um, torrential rains have occurred not only in India, thanks to the monsoon, and not only in China because of Meiji, but also in Japan and Korea, where the Meiji rain front uh, extends thanks to the Tibetan plateau westerly jet. Sorry. 
um, the Western North Pacific subtropical high, of course, not only channels all of this moisture from the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean to China, but also determines the Mayi front and how far it gets into Northeast Asia, Japan, and Korea. Um, this is a picture from the Chinese Meteorological Administration's website, as this is the way they understand um, the Mayi front. And you can see all these elements, the moisture from the South China Sea and the um, Indian Ocean and the Tibetan Western Plateau as it creates this Mayi front over the Yangtze and the Huaihe River Valley. And these are the kind of the, the result of the interaction of all these different uh, climate systems is the torrential rain that we've seen between June and July of 2020. And uh, there's a lot of work in paleoclimatology that is reconstructing how strong the monsoon and the Meiji front has been in the past. Um, I, in particular, I follow the one from the Tree Ring Laboratory in Columbia University, which gathers uh, dendrochronologies from the tropical Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and in Tibet and China in order to reconstruct the strength of the monsoon and the Meiji front uh, throughout its history. And just to make a quick summary of what I've just said, um, historically, we're beginning to see uh, an increasing trend of hotter Indian Ocean sea surface temperatures. This probably is a result of climate change and global warming, and which has led to more moisture coming historically, most of the moisture that goes to uh, China comes from the South China Sea and the Pacific Ocean. But ever since uh, 2000, uh, we're seeing a trend where a lot more moisture is coming in from the Indian Ocean, and which corresponds also to a stronger Western North Pacific subtropical high, which funnels this moisture even faster into central China, hence thus increasing the amount of possible rainfall in the region. Um, we are still conducting more research on um, the history of Meiji and Monsoon, and I'm confident that the National Ar Natural Archives of uh, tree rings and geological proxies are going to give us a better sense in the future of Meiji fluctuations in strength. But I also want to emphasize as a climate historian that climatological factors alone don't explain the unfortunate events of 2020, and we also need to factor in the human context. So off we go to the next speaker. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Chris has introduced, uh, uh, we'll talk about the overview of the uh, 2020 flood and historical continuities and uh, the departure uh, from the past. And Clark, thanks for the, the introduction about the monsoon season of, the, uh, of this region of, for this year. And I will talk more specifically about the flood diversion strategies and how to solve the flood and what kind of solutions they have been implemented in, in, in order to fight off the floods. There are usually two immediate strategies and uh, in the situations of dikes overwhelmed by uh, the excessive flood waters. And the one is to utilize a group of reservoirs and including dams that adjust uh, the flood water level and in the middle and downstream of the Yangtze River. And the other one is to utilize the flooding diversion areas and it's called the Zhou Tan Xinhong. And uh, so I will show uh, a map actually um, that is related with my uh, hometown. Mm -hmm. 
is it sharing? Okay, so um, the Zhou Tan Ming Yuan, also called uh, the Polders, and uh, has a long history and uh, played a very important role and in relieving the flooding pressure along the Yangtze. Historically, there were two systems of dikes, and in the middle Yangtze region, the Yangtze Main Dike, and along the, the main river course of, uh, of the river, and the community dikes, and which we call the uh, Mingyuan. And the main dikes of the Yangtze and the Han River dikes were funded by the government and uh, are properly managed by both the government and the communities. And when floods struck the region, the most vulnerable areas actually were in the community dikes area. In 1998, flood and more than 100 million were flooded in order to uh, relieve the uh, water pressure from the main river uh, water course. And uh, uh, they were either because of the overflow of the flood water or is for they were intentionally destroyed and to letting the flood water into the communities. And so this year, when the water level of Wuhan rose to the historical, the number fourth, fourth historical high, and the, the several Mingyuan had to be flooded in order to protect the main dike of the Yangtze. Um, so on uh, July 12th, Tianxin Zhouyuan in the Yangtze was flooded. It's over here. Sorry. It's over here, and the tension Zhouyuan and was formed out of the sedimentation and from the upstream, and has been moving downstream uh, for about 11 meters every year uh, in the uh, middle of the Yangtze River course. And uh, on uh, within a week after the diversion of the Tianxin Zhouyuan and the Dongfengyuan in this area, and the communities were evacuated, that the people were evacuated to prep for the flood diversion uh, during this time. So uh, the same flooding actually was also happening in many other of the Mingyuan uh, in the Jiangxi and Anhui provinces, and especially in the high water times and uh, 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 in the middle of July. And now it seems like in this area, actually the water is receding. Uh, in, in addition to the labors and the organizing and from the government, the military joined and uh, in fighting of the floods and we also see a strong initiatives uh, from the local communities. And uh, so the local, the community people organized themselves and trying to protect the community dikes and even after they were evacuated from the flood diversion areas. And they organized into uh, kind of a dike watching teams called Shaobing. So it's kind of very, in a very military tone and dividing responsibilities and to inspect the dikes and which it has. You can, we can find a lot of historical uh, traces and the back in history and the similar practices or on and just like uh, the local communities, local initiatives to manage the dikes. And some families and to see multiple generations going on the dikes and such a local initiative has always been a strong tradition in this area. So the community dikes usually are low and uh, are lower and made of the earth. So they were easily to be saturated by the flood waters. And so they were constantly needing the, 
attention uh, from the people and inspect and uh, and to maintain and need a, a huge labor and to uh, keep it intact. And uh, so they use the flood diversion areas. They use as the um, flood diversion and uh, is a historical legacy and modern policy design. And some communities were ordered to retreat from the areas in order to better prepare uh, for the flooding emergencies. And then the two type of retreats, the double retreats or single retreat. And so the double retreat are the people retreated, evacuated from the communities and the residential houses, as well as their agricultural activities, but a single retreat. So they retreat from their um, residential houses, but they still maintain to keep going back and to perform their agricultural activities. Um, so uh, as far as the flood go uh, for this year, and many cited that this time the floods were uh, smaller in general on a small scale than that in the uh, 1998 floods, and the communities diverting the floods have played a critical role in the overall management of the current flooding situations. But from the local level, and the people suffer, and those are um, the aspects we should be pay more attention to. Thank you. Hmm? Okay. Can you all see it? Okay. Okay, good. Okay, thank you. Um, so um, I'm assigned to talk about the um, water management infrastructure, uh, especially in South China. There are thousands of dams um, in South China, so I'm not capable to cover all of them. And uh, as a historian, uh, my knowledge, I have to admit that my knowledge about the engineering and hydrological aspect of the of those dams are limited, um, but speaking of uh, water management infrastructure, uh, you must curious uh, about the role of uh, the Three Gorges Dam uh, in this year's flood, right? Because um, it uh, was completed in 2009. Now it's 2020. There are still severe floods uh, in South China, and uh, why uh, why um, it is so. So um, to understand it, I think we have to take a look at the uh, Yangtze River water system map uh, as I show it here. So the dam is located on the kind of upper stream of the Yangtze River. So it can only control flood uh, water from the upper stream, uh, while can do very limited, can do very little about flood in the middle and uh, lower reaches of the Yangtze uh, River especially those tributaries uh, in Hunan and uh, Jiangxi provinces. Um, and that's what I see this year, those kind of regional floods uh, in those part of uh, the uh, South China. Um, and also the kind of uh, misunderstanding of the so-called omnipotence of the Three Gorges Dam, I think we can uh, partially attribute it to the uh, kind of exaggeration of the flood control capacity 
in the initial proposal of this regards dam in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, well, but to be fair to the project, I think uh, the dam does also contribute to the flood control of, of the Yangtze River by uh, mitigating the peak flows, especially from the upper stream. Uh, in doing so, it kind of lowers the risk of dike failures uh, in the downstream, especially uh, in Hubert province. Um, um, so usually the regular water level of the Three Gorges Reservoir uh, is around um, 175 meters above the sea level. Uh, according to state requirement, uh, it has to lower its water level to around uh, 145 meters before each flood season. So that to make enough room uh, for the uh, upcoming uh, flood water during flood seasons. Um, so, um, but of course, in the meantime, uh, it would compromise part of its uh, hydroelectricity generation capacity. Uh, speaking about the kind of uh, the anxiety uh, about the possible uh, dam fears uh, in, in the air. Um, I think that concern is understandable, but should not be exaggerated. Um, we know that in history, um, there is, there was uh, a dam figure in 1975 uh, in the, um, upper reaches of the Huai River in southern Henan, my uh, home province. Uh, so the so-called Banqiao and the Shiman Tan Dam figure. So that dam figure caused the deaths of uh, uh, around 100 to 240,000 people um, because of flood and also the disease uh, following the flood. Um, so that's, that's it was one of the most devastating uh, kind of dam figure in human history. Uh, I think a few years ago, there was also a dam figure in California. And this year, I think in May, there uh, were dam figures in Michigan, in the United States. Um, so that concern is, you know, that, that is real. Um, but I, I also want to talk a little bit about the reported dam deform, deformation. Um, well, that is not new this year, but uh, actually a report uh, from last year. I think the Chinese authority has kind of clarified, clarified and saying that uh, the dam is in good shape and safe. Um, so instead of uh, worrying about the um, kind of possible dam figures, I, I think uh, we also need to pay more close attention to the suiting problem uh, and the um, reservoir displacement programs. Um, so to, to conclude, I think um, I, I want to say that dams alone uh, would not solve the um, flooding problem in, in China. Um, especially when we consider, you know, when we think about the technological lock-in and the uh, population density uh, in South China. Um, so to be more practical, I think uh, in addition to dams, um, you know, there are just so many have been built uh, and it's hard to uh, kind of decommission them. Um, so a viable flood control system should consist of, uh, you know, flood diversion or storage basins, those kind of uh, dikes, uh, as well as a resilient wetland system, which is lacking uh, in contemporary China. Thank you, Ling.
Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, so yeah. for some strange reason, I couldn't hear Xiangli for the la the past one minute. But anyhow, I'm here back. Great. Thank you guys so much. I really love the ways in which all of you construct your talk and you bring in different perspective. Um, Chris began by bringing us all the way back to pre-modern era. Then Clark basically flight all of us up to the air. Then Yen and Xiangli help us to reground ourselves, right? Zoom in, zoom in to a local community, how to deal with the uh, local level issue by organizing themselves. And then Xiangli bring us to the center of our anxiety, whether or not the Three Gorgeous Den gonna collapse or not, right? So anyhow, wonderful introduction to the 2020 situation. This is, uh, I believe our audience know that this is a very general introduction, by no means we can cover all the ground so you can contact our speaker to zoom in right to ask more questions but now I want to switch our attention to reorientate us back to more historical uh, you know background to, to connect with the historical depth all of us here sitting here are uh, three speakers are environmental historians and then they have uh, they're gonna bring in more of the, uh, their specialty to compare what's the similarities and what's the differences between what they see this year and then from the longer historical past. Uh, I'm going to call out Clark first to, to, uh, to begin this part of a conversation. And then we will be followed by Yen and then Chris and then again end with Xiangli because you are our contemporary person. Okay. Um... So let me again. So Ling asked us to reflect on what we see, what we're seeing right now with our own research interests. Unfortunately, I do South China and not Central China. And though I'm interested in cultural history, I think Chris and uh, Yen probably know more about the ways in which floods and people's uh, cultures and lives have been shaped in this region of China more than I do. But I study typhoons in South China and the flood, and of course also the floods that come with typhoons um, over the course of the last 1,500 years. And I tend to see things over the long durée. And typhoons and floods are both in a sense disaster, natural disasters. And one of the things that I've become really interested in uh, looking at uh, these floods and the way they've been managed is the way that disasters and legitimacy, the political legitimacy, are very closely intertwined. Um, for any of you who do Chinese history, especially Chinese environmental history, you will know that um, in many ways, natural disasters have been very much tied to um, the Chinese state since the beginning of Chinese history from the mandate of heaven. But as I've studied uh, typhoons in South China from the 5th century to the 20th century, one of the things I noticed is that um, the state has been increasingly in, become involved in the management of disasters. And in a way, the management of disasters, I would argue, is becoming an increasingly important part of the state's narrative of its legitimacy. And so I just want to give a, a quick kind of um, explanation of what I mean by this in terms of um, um, the floods and my own research in typhoons. So we know that um, imperial 
um, dynasties like the Qing dynasty uh, very much um, exerted a lot of effort into disaster relief. Uh, I show you here a, 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 pic, a portion of a memorial at Zouzhou uh, from the first historical archives in Beijing. And this is uh, from my own research. Um, this is a memorial reporting uh, a typhoon disaster in Guangdong in, in South China and the official, local officials' efforts to relieve the flooding and um, the suffering caused by the typhoon. And you have the Qianlong Emperor writing in Vermilion Inc. about how um, if all of my officials um, were as um, were as conscientious as you, then my, my people would not suffer so much. And so there, we see um, in my, in my book manuscript, I argued that the state, as it entered into South China, uh, increasingly um, increased its ability to manage disasters and to penetrate society through disaster management. And so prior to the Qing dynasty, there was a lot of descriptions of typhoons, but not really a lot of things that uh, the state could do in order to manage typhoons. But Qing dynasty, you have uh, very, um, as many Chinese historians who know, um, the ever normal granary system was put into into um, into motion in order to help alleviate um, disasters like uh, typhoons. Qing also did some kind of ritual management. So in my uh, research, I found that along the Guangdong coast, um, the, the Qing government set up wind, a network of wind god temples to help manage. Uh, typhoons ritually and this is a picture that I took in 2016 when I visited uh, Leizhou Peninsula in South China and witnessed uh, this village marching out its wind god which um, dates to the Qing dynasty and uh, in a procession. By the 20th century uh, the state really gets very much involved in disaster management uh, thanks to modern tools like meteorology and um, the Mao state's uh, ability to penetrate local society. Um, disaster management becomes increasingly politicized and people are mobilized, um, so mass mobilization in order to fight uh, nature, to fight typhoons. Um, you know, Judith Shapiro's famous um, book, Mao's War Against Nature. And here I have a picture of uh, propaganda um, in Guangdong, uh, where people are asked to fight typhoons and protect dikes and dams with their own bodies, linking their arms and hands in order to combat um, nature. So after the Mao period and uh, the post-Mao uh, era, um, people no longer were mobilized to do this the way that Mao did it. Um, instead, the People's Liberation Army has taken over many of these tasks that people were originally mobilized to do under Mao. So we, uh, whether it's a 2008 Sichuan earthquake or all kinds of disasters after 1980, we increasingly see the greater role that the PLA has taken in terms of uh, managing disaster. And as we know, the PLA is, of course, uh, an extension of the Chinese Communist Party. So it serves as an effective kind of propaganda uh, machine for demonstrating the, um, the efficacy of the Communist Party state. 
when I did my research in China in 2016, it was co it coincided with the 40th anniversary of the Tangshan earthquake, the disastrous Tangshan earthquake of 1976. And I watched uh, with great interest on CCTV um, Xi Jinping's visit to uh, Tangshan on July 28th of 2016. And um, these are some images from that visit where he's talking to survivors of the earthquake. And what really caught my attention was the way in which uh, Xi and the Communist Party really tied uh, their legitimacy, uh, at least one aspect of their legitimacy to the Communist Party state's ability to manage disasters. So this is from that a trip to Tangshan, where he taught, I wasn't able to translate this um, for this, but basically for those who can read Chinese, um, he's basically saying here that um, the ability to manage this disasters is basically a very good way of measuring the capability and leadership of the government. And so he's basically tying the legitimacy of his, uh, the Communist Party towards its ability uh, to its ability to manage natural disasters. And I've, I've seen this trend increase over the course of a thousand years of Chinese history. And it's, just, it's the same as well for the 2020 floods. Um, so I've been very much interested in the official pronouncements and the way that the government has not only responded physically, but the way it's projecting its image um, and, lit and reinforcing its legitimacy um, through its work managing these 2020 floods. So you have very similar kinds of uh, pronouncements from Xi Jinping um, during and in the wake of these 2020 floods. And kind of the argument I want to make is that um, though the recent floods do pose an additional challenge, especially in light of COVID-19, and if you go online and you Google uh, people will say, oh, how unlucky China is. You just had a coronavirus, how unlucky Wuhan is. And now it has to deal with these floods. And then as we, then you have locusts and things like that. But the way I see it is that I think probably in Xi's mind, he also sees this and the Communist Party is also an opportunity for them to reassert their narrative of legitimacy. So the floods, I see this as an opportunity for them to demonstrate how Chinese socialism or socialism with Chinese characteristics works and that the party handles disasters effectively. And this is especially important in light of the fact that China's received a lot of criticism both locally and in internationally over the way it has handled the COVID-19, uh, the, the virus. And so I think these floods is a way of not only distracting people from what happened there, but actually it's a way of saying, look, we actually handle these things well, and that's why you should support us. So kind of my, my closing reflection is that uh, disaster management in Chinese history has increasingly become a tool for the Chinese state to assert its legitimacy and expand its influence in society. Okay, thank you, Clark. And um, yeah, so uh, since I'm in the uh, uh, late imperial modern China, and so I will just go to the basics and uh, talking about the historical roots of uh, the current floods. And the first one is land recommendation. And there are several main trends of land recommendation, starting with the military initiative uh, in the 13th century and the defense of the Mongols in the central, in the middle Yangtze region. 
and the migration of the people in the, into the region and in the 15th and the 16th century and the 18th century population growth have stimulated a large scale of land recognitions. And the people drained the waterways and the lake of front and to build the polders that started a typo for amphibians lifestyle in the polders. And uh, so they were yearly conducted rice cultivation and doing the fishing and there were uh, complementary lifestyle in the region. And however, with more and more wetlands became more and more uh, reclaimed and turned into agriculture fields and uh, such an amphibian lifestyle and was not sustainable anymore. And so the severe shrinkage of the wetlands in the area has definitely taken a, a heavy toll on the overall river lake system of the region. The second, the sedimentation, and largely related with the river geomorphological movement. And so upstream mountain region, and uh, it was taken several centuries, and the shark people opened up the, the forest land in the upstream of the river, and the deforestation led to increased sedimentation um, in the downstream rivers, compounded with the geomorphological movement of the river, and the sediment had been such a a problem for the central Yangtze, the Yangtze in the middle stream, and the Yangtze River had become a suspending river. And um, so there is a pagoda in the Jinzhou area, was built in the 1500s, and uh, so over the centuries up until now, it's sink uh, 7.5 meters. As we can see, if you enter into the pagoda and you have to go down the stairs and then go into the pagoda. So that is one manifestation of the geomorphological movement of the river and with the surrounding environment. And the third, the environmental justice. And in history, then have always been an issue in the flood management in this region. And because of the political reasons, such as uh, ancestor tombs, protect ancestor tombs of the high officials, or the critical location of the government offices. And the government had always been favoring the one side of the riverbank over the other. So as we can see, there's a one side of the uh, riverbank has been continuously strengthened and uh, was properly managing and divided into different sections. Um, and assigning officials and assigning funds. And so that side of uh, the, the river bank was never flooded and it was continuously um, uh, go along with uh, the growth of the dike. The dike was building higher and higher and, and uh, become stronger and stronger. On the other side of the river, and it was called the Zhou Tan Xinyuan. Zhou Tan Xinhong. So they were loosely managed by the communities and they were, when the flooded waters came and those communities were doomed and they were flooded. And so it's kind of, uh, uh, it's uh, one, one bank over the other, the favoritism in terms of geography uh, and uh, um, uh, of this area. So uh, this issue, overall landscape and the waterscape of the Jiangan Plan was changed from the long term in the long run. And after thousands of years embankment, and the current dikes reached 10 to 15 meters higher than the surrounding areas along the river. 
and the channel bank. And this embankment had largely leveled up the river channel that's increased the river bed and making the Yangtze a suspending river. And the Jianghan plan was called the Netherlands in, in central China. And, uh, uh, and uh, largely due to the heightened, heightened dikes and the uh, suspending river and its large flat lowland areas and with extensive dike management. So, um, so the average level of the plan, actually, if you look at the ground level of the plan, the Jianghan plan now, uh, it was lower than the bottom of the Dongping Lake, so surrounding areas. And the geologists were uh, also talking about the seesaw uh, geography, um, geological landscapes in this area as the river. In the middle, the Yangtze River as uh, the seesaw, the plank, and the, with the, um, the yeah, one side of uh, the Jianghan Plain and uh, with the Dongting Lake as two sides of the seesaw. So that geogra uh, uh, geology landscape and the waterscape of this area actually turned this region actually exceptionally lowland and, uh, and frequently uh, um, inundated and has severe of the drainage problems became the water bag and because water cannot go away uh, in these areas. So different historical drives and uh, uh, the flooding and drainage problems what deep, deeply entrenched in the historical policies, practices and uh, human activities of this region. And uh, one might um, say that the flooding, the diversion communities, the flood diversion communities could also pose the similar environmental justice issue at the present. Thank you. Okay, where am I going? Hopefully you can now see my screen. Okay. Uh, well, it's really great for Yen to wrap up the way she did, and I'm kind of building on what she said just now and also in her first introduction, thinking about this issue of flood uh, diversion, the kind of um, deliberate sacrificing of one area in order to save another. And it's kind of illustrative of the way that one of the things I find interesting about flooding is it has the capacity to create these really uh, kind of toxic zero-sum political kind of dynamics between different communities. And uh, I know the end's written about that um, in kind of the context of the kind of deeper history, how communities um, get pitted against each other because water control can be a bit of a zero sum uh, game in, in terms of I flood my community in order to, uh, your community in order to save mine. And as we know, it, as Yen already mentioned in her first comments, this kind of flood diversion tactic has been used extensively in the response to the 2020 floods. Um, so she was talking about Dongxi Lake and Tianxing uh, Zhou here in, in Wuhan. The kind of the, it's one of these polders, right, that Yen's been talking about, was, was deliberately flooded in order to try and protect uh, other areas of Wuhan. You can see from the map, this area is relatively underpopulated, but there are people who live there. And uh, it doesn't come as a surprise probably to find out they weren't particularly pleased about this um, this strategy of um, inundating this particular area. But this together with the construction of these um, rather extensive kind of flood defense areas uh, that was sent by a friend of mine in Wuhan, um, did manage to so far prevent the widespread inundation of Wuhan. 
Um, they've suffered only kind of relatively little in comparison to other cities that have experienced much worse. Possibly some people have suggested more um, effort was put into defending Wuhan because of what they've just gone through with coronavirus. Um, but the, the um, strategy of flooding areas in order to save Wuhan reminded me um, immediately of what happened during the 1954 floods. So the 1954 floods, here you can see a image taken in a re relatively close by to the image of what I was just showing you, that guy building that flood defense here. So it's the kind of riverbank area in Hankou, the Hankou area of Wuhan, um, and with a very iconic uh, Maritimes Customs building in the background. And much uh, as Clark was saying in his talk about kind of um, the legitimacy of the state being predicated on their capacity to prevent disasters, in 1954, this was extremely prevalent in all of the kind of uh, propaganda and all the kind of representation of this disaster. And it's this kind of, as, as Clark mentioned, this kind of millennia of history of like, of using disasters as a, as a tool to kind of bolster legitimacy. But in 1954, of course, it's also ramped up by the fact this is a nascent communist regime that's taken over from the Guomindang, whose failure is represented in the bottom photograph that we can see there. So the same view in 1931, when the city was inundated. So in the kind of politics of Hubei, protecting Wuhan from flooding has become a major marker of regime legitimacy for, for the Communist Party. And here we can see another kind of representation of flooding at this particular time. Again, you can see the iconic Maritimes Custom building in the background. And it's got uh, it's basically a, a mother fish talking to, it, to its children. And the, the, the small fish says, didn't you say that when there was a flood, we could go and play in Hankou? And the, small fi the, the big fish says, oh, that was in 1931. That couldn't possibly happen nowadays. And suggesting that um, under the new regime, that couldn't possibly happen. So indeed, it is true that much of Wuhan was not flooded in 1954. It's not entirely true. Um, so, for example, Wuhan is made up of three cities. The city of Hanyang was extensively flooded during that year. And much of it was also kind of deliberately flooded. It was kind of um, flood, flooding was allowed to go into Hanyang. It wasn't quite used as a kind of flood detention basin, but it was kind of allowed to go into Hanyang in order to kind of concentrate resources on saving the economically more important uh, parts of Wuchang and, and Hankou. Um, so that's kind of one way they did it. But the, the kind of massive way that they managed to save Wuhan in 1954, supposedly, was through... Uh, the, the use of this Jinjiang flood diversion, which is kind of a, a massive version of a flood detention uh, basin that, that Yen was talking about in central Hubei province. So that allowed, it's kind of this big sluice gate that allowed the Anza River to flow onto um, the floodplains. This is toted as a kind of uh, great modern invention that was going to allow the Communist Party to totally um, manage floods in fact, there had been sluice gates since as early as the Song Dynasty to, to kind of do similar sort of um, releasing water during high um, flood, flood peaks. They'd actually allowed them to silt up during the Ming Dynasty. So they rebuilt these, the, or they built these new detention basins in 1952. And then in 1954, they allowed the water to flow onto the plains three times in order to try and prevent flooding downstream, particularly the flooding of the important economic center of Wuhan. And at the time, this was depicted as 
the rural population voluntarily allowing their villages to be flooded, thereby sacrificing their well-being in order to save the city. Quite how much you can say somebody voluntarily allows the government to inundate their community is uh, a question I can leave with you. The other kind of major issue that's surrounding this, this flood diversion in this year, however, was the fact that it was um, inundating an area that was supposed to have been evacuated, but it was not properly evacuated. Um, there's numerous reasons for this. I won't go into all of them. One of the kind of major reasons, however, was the fact that the, the rural populations living in this re region, having just gone through land reform, were extremely reluctant to leave their land. People are always reluctant to leave during flooding, right? So in Tianxingzhou in Wuhan this year, people didn't want to leave, apparently, is what I've heard from reports of people in the city. But this year, in particular, people were saying, if we leave our land, you're going to take it away from us. And they were thinking that the government were going to use this as a tool to collectivize certain amounts of land, which was actually quite prescient because they did do that later in the 1950s. Um, so they didn't leave. The, the, the evacuation was delayed. Uh, and eventually, when people were uh, kind of moved out into refugee camps, the refugee camps had not, I mean, I'm not, this is all kind of based on kind of very selective cadre reports that were written at the time. But as far as I have been able to reconstruct it, it seems that the refugee camps have not been adequately prepared. And you again have this outbreak of disease happening. Uh, as I mentioned before, the epidemiological environment created a disaster out of this flood. So the, the official statistics for the 1954 flood claim that around 30,000 people died. Internal disaster investigations in the Hubei Provincial Archives say that 149.5 thousand people died. And of these, you can see here, 104,000 of these are in the Jingzhou area, which was part of the area where people were being displaced by flood detention. So really, this, I think, is a kind of represents, I don't think this is a kind of act of despotism, nobody did this on purpose, but it really does demonstrate what happens when this policy of flood detention goes wrong on a kind of mass scale. So just coming back to something that Shangli was talking about, how the fixation on looking at is the, is the Three Gorges Dam going to breach, is it going to stretch? I think this is a very important point, we need to continue uh, concentrating on this, but we also need to pay attention to this policy when we're thinking about the kind of the political dimensions and the humanitarian dimensions of flooding in China of precisely what Yen was talking about in, in terms of this deliberate inundation of particular areas as flood detention basins and make sure that we pay attention to the humanitarian consequences because the experience of 1954 shows that this can go severely wrong. Okay, that's all I have to say. Okay, can you all see it? Then can you see my uh, PowerPoint? Yes, uh, yeah, you. it works. Okay, so I basically would echo um, Yen and uh, Chris's discussion on environmental justice and the humanitarian consequence of uh, flood uh, in throughout Chinese history. Um, so to make some kind of connections between my own research and uh, uh, flooding uh, this year in China, uh, I would like to kind of compare my study of reservoir 
uh, displacement uh, related to the three uh, gauge gorge, the Simon Shah hydropower project uh, on the Yellow River in the 1950s uh, with the uh, White River uh, evacuation, uh, flood division uh, basin evacuation uh, this year in Anhui. Um, so uh, in the 1950s, um, the uh, reservoir displacement in Honan, Shanxi, and uh, Shanxi uh, lead to the displace displacement of um, you know, more than um, 400,000 uh, residents in, in that region. And um, because of the loss of uh, farmland and properties, um, so it's lead to long-term uh, impoverishment of those communities. And uh, I, I see uh, kind of similarity, um, you know, uh, between the 1950s and, and today. Uh, in Anhui, uh, kind of frequent flood uh, diversion has kind of constrained the uh, local economic development and uh, improvement of uh, people's uh, living standard, especially in the Huai uh, River uh, Valley. So, um, in both cases, my own study um, of the 1950s and, and this year, um, we can see that state medias and the Chinese authority kind of promoted um, the principle of uh, sacrifice the minority for the good of the majority or sacrifice individual homes for the uh, good of the collective or for the good of the country. Right? So that kind of value and a principle uh, in many cases, I think um, stand and uh, um, are needed in state of uh, emergency and disaster. Um, uh, but uh, we, we should, you know, pay uh, very close attention to the kind of humanitarian and economic um, consequences of, of those um, kind of values or decisions. Um, this year, in one interview of uh, many of those uh, evacuees in Nanhui, um, so one of the uh, senior ladies said that, you know, um, although we felt bad about losing our property, um, human life is, is more uh, valuable than property. Um, well, no matter we, you know, believe it's, you know, kind of propaganda or not, um, I, I do kind of respect um, the spirit and the sacrifice of those uh, evacuees. Um, but I would like to add that you know, um, everyone's property is property and their economic loss should be fairly kind of um, considered, should be fairly compensated. Um, well, the current policy, um, at least in the Huai River Valley, would only compensate um, 50 to 70 percent of the crop loss caused by flood diversion in those basins. Um, property um, damage, uh, aquaculture, uh, stuff like fish, uh, crawfish, or ducks, um, and other economic losses are not covered by the current policy. And even worse, I think we should also realize not only those basins, those state-designated basins are flooded, but their neighboring communities, which are not considered at the uh, designated um, diversion basins uh, also suffer. And uh, their economic loss are basically not covered by the policy because they are not considered as part of the uh, designated uh, diversion basin. So, um, so kind of 
also as an alternative plan or as a kind of long-term plan, the government um, proposes to resettle those communities um, to kind of other places. That happened in the 1950s during the Mao year. Mao um, and other kind of, uh, and his father proposed that China should uh, resettle people from um, populated areas or um, especially from Eastern and Central China um, to uh, the frontier region. Uh, and today we see that kind of very similar proposal but of course, today, because of uh, financial uh, and uh, um, the lack of uh, land resources, that plan is, is kind of very hard to implement. And also, you know, the kind of demographic engineering um, policy during the Mao years, uh, in many cases, not all of them, uh, but in many cases, failed. Um, so uh, we, we can see, you know, kind of many similarities. Uh, between the 1950s during the Mao year and, and the least year. Um, so in other words, I think those rural areas, especially rural areas, uh, the kind of discrepancy between cities and uh, countryside in China, those rural areas are sacrificed to protect cities along the kind of lower um, stream uh, of the Huai River. And uh, I call for kind of policies to compensate for the short term, not only the short term, but the long term um, loss of those communities more fairly. Uh, in particular, uh, I, I think those protected cities along the downstream should pay for the loss of those um, rural, rural communities. Okay, Lee. Wonderful. Thank you so much, our speakers. Uh, you really brought um, extremely uh, rich insights based on your private, uh, your, your personal research into um, the, 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 this picture of ongoing disasters in China. So we, you brought up a lot of things, but we, uh, we are run out of time. So we have a precious 15 minutes left for Q&A. Um, so I've uh, collected many excellent questions from our audience. I don't believe we can cover all of them. So if we cannot cover your question, uh, excuse us. You know how to contact our speakers. You may address your questions directly to um, all of them or each of them. But I'm going to bring up some questions here. So I'm just going to uh, let four of you to jump in here. Okay, so first question is from our friend and colleague, David Pierce. David has some technical questions. So David says specifically to Clark, if Clark didn't mention anything in this regard, um, could Clark comment on whether or not there was a unusually large snowpack melt in Yangtze River source area this year? And all of you, if you know something, jump in. Um, so there are many factors that go into these floods. Snowpack melt certainly is one of them. But I think this year, in terms of my, at least my judgment of the reports, the climatology, the meteorology, the biggest uh, factor is the increasing amount of moisture that came in from the Indian Ocean, uh, which exacerbated the already usual amount of moisture that comes in from the South China Sea and the Pacific Ocean. So to me, um, snowpack melt, might have been a factor, but it wasn't the big factor climatologically in uh, exacerbating the, the, the rainfall and, and the floods this year. 
anyone would like to jump in? Or otherwise, we will have time to move on to another question. <laughs> That's great. Okay, our, uh, we have a question coming from, again, our colleague and a friend, Steve Harrow. Um, Steve says, as I understand 1998 floods, the main weather issue was not local rains, but rather eight upstream flood surges. Were the weather patterns different in 2020? Well, uh, so as I mentioned, every every disaster is in a sense different. There are some s s uh, similar factors coming in, but um, perhaps in in 1998 it might have been the snow melt and the and the surge in upriver. Um, this year, 2020, it was mainly from um, increased moisture from the oceans. So it it's really uh, each disaster has to be taken. Um, differently even if some of these factors might be seem similar mm. i just uh, as i understand it there was also quite a lot of problems particularly with the poyang lake area kind of further downstream causing um i don't know if yen's uh, about to, to, to discuss this as well causing uh, further downstream f uh, flooding localized raining rain in that area I haven't followed the kind of meteorological dimensions of this particular year that closely, but that certainly seems to have been a factor now. Uh, and I think 98 and 2016, definitely El Nino was a factor. Um, this year, not as much. Yeah, I was told by an engineer and, uh, uh, well, kind of participating in the dam construction on the Yangtze, and this year, actually, the uh, rainfall in the area, regional rainfall, was a big factor uh, in causing the flood, as opposed to the, to the 1998 flood, and that is uh, all the entire Yangtze watershed, and uh, yeah, posed a big threat and to the flooding situation in the area. Great. Let's Let's quickly move on. So we have a question from our friend and a colleague uh, who dying all the way from India. So the, right now, this is after midnight there, right? So Arup, this is your question. Do we have any estimate of a total annual, annual share of China's GDP in flood control and related expenses, disaster relief? Do we have a GDP number, things like that? Okay, we don't know. We will look into it. <laughs> Thank you for a good question. All right, um, next question. Again, our friend Arunabhagosh right now is in India as well, <laughs> way after midnight. So, okay, Ar uh, Arunab said, Hi all, thanks for the discussion. I'm wondering if the panelists could comment on the category or definition of a quote, quote, people affected. New reports speaks of 60 million affected because of the recent flooding. I have also seen reports that explain this by stating that this estimate is arrived at by totaling the population of districts affected by flooding, not a actual account of people directly affected. So what is the history of this, the, such a category definition? What exactly is at stake here politically, technically, 
how does this compare to the practices in other countries? It's a huge question. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I will just quickly jump in, and I know a little bit of details, and but I don't know about the categorization of the people that were affected and how they were categorized and they were counted. But in terms of uh, flood diversion area, Tianxin, Zhouyuan, they evacuated 457 uh, people and uh, from the uh, area. And for the Dongshan Yuan uh, of the Dongxihu district, that's close to my home, and that is they evacuated about more than 100, I think, uh, people from the area. That's what they counted as uh, kind of the people that were directly affected. And those people and were uh, um, relocated to different schools and uh, uh, were the other villagers and uh, related uh, uh, family members. And, uh, and so those people, I don't know if they were counted or not, and uh, uh, I have no idea. So definitely those people and the counting of those people and we need to look more into it. It's a really great question because this is the, the slippery, this slippery statistic, right, within all of these um, historic statistics. And they were certainly doing it in the 1950s, right, this disaster-affected population. What the hell does it mean? Um, again, I think it's precisely as you suggest, they're kind of calculating the number of districts that are affected and calculating the population of that district and suggesting that this is the number of people who've been affected. What does affected mean? I mean, affected can mean like drowned. Affected can mean you lost a, a field uh, of rice. Um, it is a very, very slippery term. Unfortunately, in lots of the kind of statistics, it's the, it's the only thing you have to go, go by, um, the kind of death toll uh, or the kind of flood-affected population. It's, it's, it's the most human of the statistics that we have, but it is very, very uh, problematic. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, uh, I think uh, um, one way to look into it probably is to uh, to check the website or the kind of uh, publications uh, of many river commissions in China and how those river commissions kind of connected with the local authorities who are on the kind of front line of flood control. Um, but I, I don't know the, um, I don't have a kind of answer to that question, but I think that is one way to look into it. Great. Okay, uh, can we move on to another question? This question is from a colleague named Alex and Nickley. So the question is, has anyone looked into how factors such as urbanization and a road construction, for instance, uh, decrease in permeability might affect flooding? Also, many attribute the severity of the 1998 floods to massive deforestation in Western regions. So now with the institution of a reforestation plans such as SLCP following the 1998 floods, have we seen any measurable results in the current floods? Or perhaps it's too difficult to isolate contributing factors, but uh, yeah. Deforestation, afforestation, are we getting better? I would say there's, I mean, obviously deforestation has a terrible effect on downstream flooding. Deforestation is also, I mean, looping back to the first part of the question, it is also a convenient scapegoat to look at a kind of fact, to kind of focus on one particular factor and ignore things like 
precisely as you suggest, the, the covering of, of uh, surfaces with concrete and all these kind of other factors that can exacerbate localised flooding in, in particular regions. And I think this kind of blaming deforestation as a singular factor has a very long history in China. It was kind of goes back to kind of uh, blaming people who are settling up in forested areas for, 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 for flooding downstream, which is a way or which I always interpreted as a, as a way of kind of blaming a singular factor for the fact that people who were also kind of empoldering land and doing all these things downstream were also exacerbating the problem of, of flooding. Um, so I really think that deforestation is a very important point, but we shouldn't necessarily think that afforestation is going to solve flooding because it's, there's so many different factors at play. Yeah, so definitely deforestation had played a very important role in the uh, increased river uh, riverbed downstreams, and uh, as I discussed earlier, and uh, so, but I would echo Chris about uh, like uh, dripping down into one factor, single factor of uh, leading to the floods, and uh, there are multiple factors that lead into. It's very complicated. Uh, like phenomena uh, and leading to uh, the kind of a disaster event. And uh, so we are um, uh, just uh, need to be very cautious and not to be reducing to uh, uh, one factor or uh, either it's deforestation or it's uh, dam construction and uh, into the flooding situation. And also urbanization is closely related with land recommendations and the turn to rural areas into the urban areas, but it has also uh, has the initiative of, for the Sponge City Initiative, and I thank you, Chris, for <laughs> mentioning that. And um, so the cities has a kind of different project and they're trying to do uh, uh, the kind of the uh, um, uh, implementation of uh, different uh, the facilities and to help the, the rainwater to go away and, uh, and smoothing the, the drainage uh, of the cities. And, and so, uh, again, very complicated issues and uh, definitely need more to look into. <laughs> okay, we have a precious uh, four minutes, and I'm going to reserve this uh, four minutes, the last question, basically, to our beloved friend and colleague, Peter Perdue. So Peter says, one of the causes of a severe flooding in the middle Yangtze is the reduction in capacity of the large lakes, like Dongting and Boyanghu, and the disappearance of hundreds of smaller lakes. Long ago, I did some work that found this was a factor in increased flooding in Henan, um, in Hunan. Um, in 19, uh, 19th century, has the government recognized this a factor and made an effort to restore the capacity of these lakes? And I recall many of you mentioned the shrinkage of wet, wetlands, all these issues, right? Yeah, so I, I would quickly just mention about uh, the flood restoration, and uh, the flood plan restoration uh, in the area, in the Dongting Lake area. And then there had been policies and they're returning the uh, land into the lakes and in the Dongting area. And uh, uh, so the flood diversion areas actually and also uh, were um, retreating the people, withdrawing the people out of the flood diversion area because so letting the flood of water to pass through. And uh, so I just mentioned about uh, the uh, Shuang Tui and the Dan, Dan Tui. So double retreat and the single retreat. 
And so double retreat and the people completely retreat from the area. So they clear the way for the flood waters. And the single retreat is uh, uh, people still conduct the agriculture activities in the area, but they did not uh, live there anymore. So there are policies implemented and trying to clear the way for the um, flood water and restore a more healthier uh, river lake existence. But uh, the land recommendation shrinkage of the lakes have been so severe in history. And uh, so we will see it would take a long time to restore. I also want to add that actually the Three Gorges Dam uh, exacerbated the shrinkage of wildland, exacerbated the, especially the shrinkage of Poyang Lake uh, in Jiangxi. I think, um, I think that's also kind of depend on the frequency of the flood, flooding uh, in those areas, right? The Shuangtui um, and Dantui. Many people know that those areas would be flooded or could be flooded. Uh, but again, uh, many of them do not have a better choice because of uh, the limited um, farmland in other parts of China. Um, so it has become a kind of a new normal for, for those people to um, occupy, um, retreat, and reoccupy that area, um, you know, follow the pace of the, of the river and the, and the lake. Okay. Any last word before we close up? Wow. Fantastic, wonderful job. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists for offering us extremely complex views um, about the ongoing, well, not ongoing, but uh, 2020 floods and then their connections with historical disaster, catastrophic events and patterns, right? And I think we can agree this panel, what this panel contributes to our knowledge and our awareness is things are complicated. We need to look, look really into the deeper historical times. And we need to travel up in the air, down into the water, right, to go down to the local communities, really, to do all sorts of research in order to piece together different messages. So I think the contribution is to um, remind us not to generalize flood events like this and just to attribute it to one single factor. That is the kind of work we environmental historians are here to do, right? I really appreciate your participation. And uh, wonderful colleagues and uh, uh, friends who are here on the webinar with us. If you have other questions, more questions, including the questions we were unable to answer, please contact our scholars here, our panelists, and that all of them are writing new books and uh, they're going to come out soon. Please follow their research and uh, learn from them. Thank you so much for your participation. We will see you again. Thank you, Ling. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Ling. Thank you all. I really appreciate it.